When we light a candle of hope, we're talking about hope in two senses, in the sense of hope for now and hope for eternity. I'd like to um, read a short passage from Jeremiah 33, and eventually we'll make it to the Gospel of Luke. But for now, we'll start with Jeremiah 33, 14. This is what the prophet proclaims. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called. That means the branch. This is the name by which the branch will be called. The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, our righteous Savior. This, pro- this proclamation of Jeremiah happens in a time when Jeremiah, for a bunch of chapters before this, has been predicting gloom and doom. Israel has been judged. They have not been following the ways of the Lord. And the prophet has been saying, we're in for desperate times. We're in for great judgment. There's going to be a huge crisis. And the crisis in the kingdom internally right now is Jeremiah is prophesying doom and gloom. But there's a whole bunch of other prophets who are saying everything's going to be fine just to please the king's ear. And so there's this internal conflict going on. And the prophets and the king and everybody just hate Jeremiah because he's telling them the truth. And they don't like his truth. It's the wrong truth. It's an inconvenient truth. It's not a popular truth. It just happens to be the word of the Lord. But partway through this, partway through this conflict, after Jeremiah has announced doom, judgment, all these things, we begin to see a shift in his proclamation. And he begins to do things that says, the disaster will not be averted, but it's not the end of all things. There is a future, there is a hope beyond the doom and disaster if we will wait for it. And you remember the symbol that God gives Jeremiah. He says, go out and buy some property. No one else is buying property on this day. They anticipate an invading army to come and conquer the territory, and so all land rights will be lost. So it's foolish to buy property in a land that's going to be conquered by a foreign government at any moment. But God through Jeremiah says, go buy some property because there's going to come a day when this property will be valued again. It may take 70 years, but there will be a day, there is a future planned, and if you will just dig down your roots in hope in me, I will make it happen. The promise of God has been given, both for the present in Jeremiah's day and for the future. All is not lost. And into, I think, somewhat perilous times of our own, I think the word of promise and restoration still sings out because we are the people of hope. We believe that God can restore and redeem all that's broken, all that's lost. Nothing is too difficult for him. 
And so even in our day, when truth is up for grabs, where you can grab any set of facts you want and proclaim them to be true, we have an anchor into truth with a capital T that doesn't change from age to age. This is Luke 19, beginning in verse 11, and I would invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke 19, 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10, he replied. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Lord Jesus, bless the reading of your word this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This is a a fascinating parable on various levels. You have 10 servants, they're each given one coin, they're told to invest it. We only hear the results of three of the 10. Um, We have a word of judgment. Some are rewarded, some are penalized. We have the whole matter of royalty and judgment in terms of royal proclamation. You know, parables typically have one main point, and it can be easy to sometimes miss the point because of other similarities that are present. I don't think it's particularly helpful in this parable to look at the man of noble birth and assume that represents Jesus. If you make a one-to-one correlation there, there are flaws in the character of this nobleman that we would never attribute to Jesus. So we have to be careful about the interpretation 
of this particular parable. Not that this parable doesn't have something significant to say about Jesus, but there isn't a one-to-one relationship here. This scene that is described isn't all that uncommon in the day it was written. I mean, we remember that Jerusalem is under Roman occupation at the time of the writing of these Gospels, the time that Jesus is walking on the earth. And so whoever is reigning in Jerusalem would have to reign by the authority of the Roman Empire. And so it might be that a a king or a nobleman had to travel to Rome to get the emperor's seal of approval in order to exercise authority in a particular area, uh, swear fealty to the emperor. We, we don't know exactly what Jesus is referencing, but that kind of thing is probably what's in mind here, where a nobleman goes on a journey. And of course, if you're in Jerusalem and you're going to Rome, um, and you can't take a 747 to get there in this particular day, it's gonna take you some time to make the trip. And so you have this, this situation that is being used by Jesus because the story is common enough to the people he's first speaking to, even though it's not particularly common to us. And so we've gotta sort of translate across the ages to figure out what's going on here. It's also interesting to note that in the story, this king wannabe has some enemies. There's some people in the province who don't want him to be king. We don't know why, it doesn't tell us in the story. We just know that there's some adversity in this process of gaining authority. You know, maybe this is a reference to Herod. We, who knows, uh, it, to, to make too many uh, interpretive comments like that may be to miss the point uh, that Jesus is trying to make in the parable overall. But I think, I think the common thread that flows through this particular parable is this. There are opportunities to be had in the nobleman's absence. Before the nobleman who will be king returns, there are opportunities to be had. And this nobleman gives 10 of his servants all a coin. That's what a mina is, a a coin. Perhaps it was a gold coin, I don't know but it was enough to be worth investing. It was enough to be doing business. And, and it was, I think it's obvious, a test of the ambition, the competence, and the diligence of the, service of the, of the servants of the king. And so these, these servants have been entrusted with something precious. The nobleman leaves and there's an opportunity at hand. There's a a chance for something to happen based on what the servants decide to do. And and the results vary predictably, right? Uh, 10 different coins, we only get reports of three of them. Um, But when the king returns, crowned with royal authority, he does an accounting and rewards are given for faithful service. The guy who had one coin and turned it into 10 coins is made ruler over 10 cities. The guy who had one coin, turned it into five coins, is authority over five cities. I'm not sure it matters all that much what the nature of the investment of the return is. 
I think the core principle is if you are diligent, there will be a reward and that diligence will actually exercise in greater reward. And so he who has will have more. What clearly counts in the parable is the effort of the servant. I have often wondered, however, what would happen if one of the servants had turned his one coin into 10 coins, into 20 coins, bought a ship, began to trade, and then the ship went down in the ocean and he had nothing to show for it. I've often wondered about that. What, what, what would the master say then? Would he come back and say, oh, you were too risky, you should have stopped while you were ahead? Or would he have seen the diligence and the faithfulness of the servant? I don't know what would have happened if he would have been awarded with one more coin to try again. But I'm not sure that it really matters because I think what Jesus is talking about in this parable is he's talking about his servants, us, and that there's something special about the investments he makes in each of us. That, that, that he, he makes investments in us, but the kinds of investments he makes, they're imperishable investments. So I don't think the story of the guy whose ship sinks ever comes into it because in the province of the parable, the resources given are not perishable. There's no opportunity for a ship to sink. There's only opportunity for success because of the nature and quality of the gift that is given. There's no risk to the kind of treasure that he gives us. Advent, this time of, of preparation for the coming of our king, is a time of opportunity for you and for me. Jesus came to be with us. He will return at some future date to receive his bride, to receive his body, to receive the church and all of the saints who have ever lived to be with him. And in the meantime, between now and then, we have some opportunities. We have some options. The early church prayed, Maranatha, come Lord, quickly. But this prayer was never accompanied by a grim, hopeless, doomsday attitude. Maranatha was always accompanied by the realization that there are opportunities to be had while we wait for the second coming of Jesus Christ. This Advent season, it is not a passive waiting. It is an active waiting. What will we do with the gift of time that we are given this Advent? What will we do with the gift of resources we are entrusted with during this Advent? What will we do with the gift of the gospel we are given this Advent? Will we share hope? 
Will we share joy? Will we share light? It's my prayer that this Advent, this little thing that I gave you, mine's big so that you can see from far away. Size of it doesn't matter. That this will be a symbol that Advent time is a gift to you, but an investment that you have the opportunity to do something with. We know that on December 25th, we will celebrate again, traditionally, the fact that Jesus was born in a manger. We know that someday Jesus is going to return, but in the meantime, we've been gifted with Advent 2018. We have this gift. It's a resource. It's an opportunity. We can choose to do something with it, or we can bury it in the hole in the ground and just do what we always do. We can do something with it, or we can refuse to carve out any time to consider what opportunities we really have. We could just bury it in the ground and get ourselves so busy we even forget we put it in the ground until someone comes back and asks us to account for what we did with Advent 2018. You think someone's gonna ask you what you did with Advent 2018 one of these days? Maybe Christmas Eve, we'll wanna know. What, what will you do with the investment Christ is making in you? What will you do? This parable ends with a very uncomfortable barb, doesn't it? The nasty king referenced here makes sure that none of his enemies live to oppose him. It's another reason why we know that the nasty king in this story isn't Jesus, because Jesus has already determined that in this present age, the weeds and the grain will grow together. And in this present age, we will have to endure the devices of our enemy and the difficulties of those who are antichrist all around us. We will have to endure that in the present age. But there is a day coming, Jesus will return. And on that great judgment day, things will be seen clearly for what they are. And there'll be sheep, and there'll be goats, and there'll be chaff, and there'll be grain. And there is a judgment day coming, which makes it all the more important the way we deal with this investment of time now. Because what you do with Advent 2018 matters. How you articulate hope to your friends and family matters. You've been entrusted with a valuable resource. It's my prayer that we will make the most of the opportunity that we've been given. Heavenly Father, help us. Guide us by your spirit so that we might be wise and diligent servants stewarding the resources you've given us, stewarding the opportunities 
you've given us, expressing the compassion to others that we've received from you ourselves. Help us, we pray, Lord Jesus. May your steps be ordered by the Holy Spirit, that the hope of Christ may be reflected in your faces this day and always. Amen. <laughs>